Good morning, saints. We'll jump right into it. So good to see everybody. Lord, we just thank you so much that all you've given us, all you're showing us, such a great high priest, full of grace and mercy, a merciful and faithful high priest. Lord, we just thank you that you're revealing these things to us in our time in the letter to the Hebrews and showing us things that speak life to our spirit, that open the heavens to us. Lord, I pray that this morning it'll be a special morning of encouragement to everyone here. I pray that the Spirit of God would comfort and encourage every single person within the sound of my voice. That they will know that they have a faithful and merciful high priest. They have one who knows our weaknesses. They have one who knows our faults and our shortcomings. We have a high priest who says, come boldly into the throne of grace. And there you will find my help and my mercy in the time of your need. Father, I pray that there be a clear word from the Son of God, from God himself, to every single person in the sound of my voice, that we have a merciful and faithful high priest who yearns to hold us, who yearns to be with us. Lord, you have removed everything that could ever separate us from you. You have taken away our sin once for all time and now you have joined yourself to us and we to you thank you Lord for this reality thank you Father in Jesus name Amen We've been talking about the letter, the letter of Hebrews, and I think this is part six, I believe. Um, we're moving through the letter of the Hebrews as the Spirit leads us, and um, as God leads us, and just taking different passages. And as we said earlier, I think the first part of the Hebrews letter that really is so powerful is that it's a letter that reveals that God has opened the heavens to us and that he yearns for us to experience an open heaven while we live on earth. That it's not something that we are to experience only after our body dies. Something so clear that came to me by the Spirit not long ago is like the Lord spoke to me in the, in the Spirit and said, not an audible voice or anything, but just so clear that he is not waiting for this body to die to give you what he purchased for us on the cross. Too many theologians are putting in the sweet by and by what should be in the sweet now and now. (laughs) Too many theologians are saying that that's going to be, you know, at his second coming, that's when righteousness will reign. That's when we'll have righteousness. 
misreading Daniel chapter 9 where it says, When Messiah comes, he shall put an end of sin. He shall finish the transgression. He shall make all reconciliation for all iniquity. And he shall bring in everlasting righteousness. And they say, that's the end of Daniel's 70th week. You know, that's that seven years in the future with the Antichrist. And when that seven years is over and Jesus returns, then sin will be done away with and transgression will be fulfilled and iniquity will be reconciled and everlasting righteousness will come. No. Daniel's 70th week was fulfilled a long time ago. Misreading a lot of the passages in Daniel. Scripture says clearly he took away sin. The Scripture says clearly that he made reconciliation for all iniquity. The Scripture says he finished the transgression because he removed the law from us. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. The Scripture says he brings in everlasting righteousness, his own righteousness. It's been done. It's happened. It's happened. And the apostles wrote about it clearly. So we have a reality now in him that we can experience now on earth. And the Spirit of God wants us to to know that this high priest that we have is a merciful and faithful high priest. That he's not only a high priest that gave himself for us to take away our sin, to remove every barrier between us and him, but he remains a merciful and faithful high priest. Merciful meaning the attitude toward us is merciful. That's why it's called a throne of grace that we go to, not a throne of judgment. And faithful meaning that that's always his attitude toward us. He's consistently merciful. He's merciful and faithful to be merciful. Because you can be merciful for one hour and that's not going to help you a whole lot. I mean, if God's merciful for you for 10 years, that's, that's great. But what happens after 10 years? But if he's merciful and faithful to be merciful, that's our high priest. Merciful and faithful. Remember that song we sing uh, around Christmas time? Um, oh, Holy Night. One of my favorite songs, Oh, Holy Night. And the verse that I love the best, which sometimes we don't sing, it's like the fourth or fifth verse. And it says something like, he's no stranger to our weaknesses. Remember that? I love that. I wish we could find that. Can someone Google that and and get the lyrics on that maybe? I'd like to read, if you can Google it and find the lyrics of that stanza on Oh Holy Night, I'd like to read the words of that song. It's amazing that he's no stranger to our weaknesses. And then we talked in in Hebrews about how there's this awesome work of God that we have a cleansed conscience. And we talked about that, you know, how the the conscience has been cleansed now in Christ. And a cleansed conscience, what that means, as we talked about, is that he has removed from us self-righteousness. Because as long as you have self-righteousness, then the conscience works in you to either accuse you or praise you. It either condemns you for, you do it for doing bad or it pats you on the back for doing good. <clears throat> Self-righteousness is the key to an evil conscience. Self-righteousness brings forth an evil conscience in God's view. God's view, an evil conscience, is a conscience that condemns a person that God is not condemning or praises a person that God is not praising him for, for, for his good deeds. He's praising God. God is praising his son's work on the cross and not the person's good, good deeds. So an evil conscience, in God's view, is a conscience that works off of self-righteousness. And it feels bad and condemned when it does bad. And it feels pretty good about himself when he does good. God says, that's evil. That's not good. A good conscience, or a cleansed conscience, is a conscience free of self-righteousness. 
We rest in the righteousness of another. Therefore, when we blow it, we don't condemn ourselves. We don't allow the conscience to condemn ourselves because we're resting in the righteousness of another. Nor when we are following in his footsteps and manifesting his life, we don't pat ourselves on the back either and say, oh, did I do a good job? Isn't God lucky to have me? No, we say, God, how did you do that? You're so awesome. Apart from you, I can do nothing. And you live through me. I, I love it. I love the way you live through me. It's awesome. See, that is a cleansed conscience. We still know good and evil. We still know right from wrong. We still have a conscience. You know, Paul talked about having a good conscience. He said the goal of his teaching was to have genuine, to have pure love, love, love coming forth, love coming forth from a pure heart, a good conscience, and genuine faith. The goal of all his teaching was love, really. Coming from that source, love. The goal of all Paul's teaching was that the love of Christ would come forth from a pure heart, which we have now in Christ, a new heart, a good conscience, which we have now in Christ, because we don't live in self-righteousness anymore. We live in the righteousness of Christ. We have a good conscience and a cleansed conscience and a genuine faith, meaning a sincere faith, not just you know someone saying, I believe in the head, but they believe in the heart sincerely. The goal of all of Paul's teaching, love, from that source, from that new creation, from that new being, building us up in the faith to see what he has done. It's awesome. So cool. So this morning I want to share just a few thoughts about another passage in Scripture about our high priest being the merciful and faithful high priest and how important that is to know that, um, that he, loves, he loves to draw near to us. That's something that I think sometimes we, we don't believe, that he loves to draw near to us. I think sometimes we, um, you know, like the sinner who said, um, uh, didn't lift his head up, but held his head down and just beat his chest and said, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We, we see ourselves sometimes that way, that God doesn't really want to draw near to me because of what I just did or how I think or how I'm not really living my life like I should be living and because God has given me all these riches and all these revelations and all these things and I, I can't seem to pull it off like maybe half the time in terms of manif- manifesting who I am in Christ. And so sometimes we feel like he doesn't really want to draw near to me. But he does. One of the tricks of the enemy is to try to get you to think that God is your enemy. We were enemies when Christ died for us. We were enemies. We were enemies of God. When God, when Jesus died for us, how much more now that you've received his sacrifice when you were an enemy, is he not your enemy? See? How much more is he not your enemy? If while we were enemies, he could have been a legitimate and rightful enemy. If when we were enemies of God, he was not our enemy. For Christ died for us while we were yet his enemy. How much more, having received him, When we blow it, does he not now become our enemy? That'd be absurd. In fact, just the opposite. He becomes, he kicks into gear the merciful and faithful office of the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek, a high priestly order that God set in place by an oath, by his own oath. I swear, God said, I swear. And we talked about that one Sunday, about the oath of God and and the Melchizedek priesthood, which is in Hebrews. I swear, said God, I swear by myself, he is your high priest forever. Meaning, that one, my son, 
merciful and faithful is my life toward you forever. I swear. I swear by myself. Isn't that awesome? So let's look at a few things. And, and one, there's one particular verse I want to look at that people seem to stumble over in the letter to the Hebrews. And it says in Hebrews um, that if you sin willfully, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. So sometimes that verse in Hebrews is taken by the enemy to try to tell us that, oh, you've blown it now. You know, that, that, that merciful and faithful high priest can't help you now because you sinned willfully. We're going to take a look at that verse real quick, too, to see what that really means. The heart, the heart of the message this morning, from God's heart to our heart, is that don't let the enemy convince you that he is your enemy, that God is your enemy. And not just that, but remember that he is set in the heavens forever to be your high priest, your personal high priest, merciful and faithful no matter what you're going through. He is no stranger to our weaknesses. He understands our faults. He understands it when we blow it. And the truth is, all sin is willful. Okay, let's look at this real quick. Hebrews. Yeah, 10, 20, 25, 26. Yeah, 26, you got it. Yep, thanks, John. Yeah, he- Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at this verse. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Keep in mind, the writer to the Hebrews is trying to not only encourage Hebrew believers, but he's also warning his Hebrew brothers to receive this revelation of the Christ and not to hold on to Moses and not to exalt Moses above Christ and not to go back to the sacrifices of bulls and goats and that kind of thing. So let's see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, can you see the saints that he's talking here about how this is really not a sin, a willful sin of the flesh of, for instance, this he's not saying here, if we sin willfully, willfully, you know, if we willfully uh, think about robbing the bank and we go in there and we rob the bank and we take the money and we run away with the money, that this is not a passage that's saying, if you willfully sin, there remains no other sacrifice for sin. What he's saying here is very specific, and he describes the sin. And it has to do with this phrase right here in verse 26. After we have received the knowledge of the truth. See, when you willfully sin 
after you have received the knowledge of the truth, what he's saying here is that you have rejected the truth. A willful sin is willful because you have received the knowledge of the truth. That's why it's called willful. In other words, when you speak to a Jewish person, when he's speaking to a Jewish person or any person about the truth of God's grace in Christ and God's forgiveness in Christ, now they have the knowledge of the truth. If they reject that truth, they are willfully rejecting it because they had the knowledge of the truth. And that is the sin. So the sin referred to here is the rejection of Christ. And it is willful because they had the knowledge of the truth. Does that make sense? Now, then he describes the sin in the next verses. He says, okay, this, this person who has rejected this gospel of Christ willfully because they had the knowledge of the truth. He had the, they had knowledge. They rejected it willfully. This person is described this way. A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which, devour, which will devour the adversaries. He used the word adversaries. So this is a person who is an adversary to Christ, who has rejected Christ. Adversary meaning an enemy, an enemy of Christ. Look at verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses, see he's comparing now the old covenant. When under the old covenant, they who rejected Moses were condemned with two or three witnesses. And rejected Moses there means when they rejected the law of Moses. And two or three witnesses would come against them and they were punished because they rejected the the covenant. So he's comparing what happened under the old covenant, what happened when they rejected Moses with now this new new covenant of rejecting Christ. Okay, look at this. It says, he who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much sore, worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought of, worthy, who has trampled? Take a look at this. These are the words he's using to describe a rejection of Christ. It's very clear. He's re- describing someone who has rejected Christ, who has trampled, this is verse 29, trampled the Son of God underfoot. That's not just deciding to go in the bank and steal some money. This is not talking about this fleshly sins that preachers try to put on the church, that if you sin, you know, if you sin willfully and do something in the flesh, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. This is widely taught in the body of Christ. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying someone who has rejected Christ, who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has walked on him, stepped on him, rejected him. Next verse, next uh, phrase. Counted the blood of the covenant, meaning the new covenant, by which he was sanctified because God died for all people. A common thing, meaning a worthless thing. Considering the blood of Christ a worthless, common thing, not a holy thing, but a worthless thing. And insulted the spirit of grace. Insulted the spirit of grace by rejecting grace. Like, I don't need grace. That's an insult to the spirit of grace, to say I don't need grace. Isn't that so clear? And then, of course, the rest of the verse talks about the judgment that comes for those who have not received Christ. Because those who stand before him in the end will have to stand in their own righteousness. And that's what Revelation talks about, you know, as as far as the books will be open and the book of life will be open, and the only thing in the book of life are names, not works. Just names. And then there's a, the other books that are open, which will be those who will stand before him based on their works because they did not receive him. Yes. But is the word saying that that person who tramples the spirit of Christ does all that, there is no hope for them? 
for him, even if he changes his mind and says, oh, no, Jesus, Lord, I am sorry. No, I do not. That, that's a good question. I do not believe there's, there's, never, there's never a time where there's no hope because every unbeliever, in a sense, is trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God as they live their own lives and so forth. And if they ever come to the place where they realize, wow, that was the truth all alone, and they do believe, then yes, they can be received into heaven. I don't think that is saying that there remains no other sacrifice for sin forever because you've done this, but it it is saying that there remains no other sacrifice for sin if you continue in this posture of rejecting the Christ. For there remains no other sacrifice that can that can forgive your sin. Does that make sense? Yeah, everything else the Word of God teaches. And I read that in Hebrews and I say, there's something I don't understand because this isn't what the rest of the Word of God teaches. So that my mind isn't able to totally understand what it says. It's like any time I find what, what humanly would be conflict in the Word of God, I denounce that in my mind. I say, well, if it appears to be conflict, I don't understand. That's how I like it. I just don't understand. That's good. There is no conflict. So that's how I rectify that and justify that within me. But this, this verse in Hebrews 10, 26, tends to blow my mind sometimes. I say, it can't be true. That's not what the word of God is. Or I read it once, it, it just, I know what it says. And it bothers me. Well, it's, to me, there's no conflict. Because it, to me, it's consistent with everything the Word of God says. Because if the Scripture says in other places, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His. In other words, you have to have the Spirit. Of, you have to be born of Him. You have to receive Him. They who do not receive Him have no hope. See, that tends to say that, that you can't come back. But I don't see that in that verse. I don't see that. I see, I see someone who is hearing the gospel, probably a Jewish person in this context, and they're rejecting, they're rejecting Christ. And because they've rejected Christ, at least at that point, at that point, that's the key, there's no hope for him. And there remains no other sacrifice. And if he goes back to Moses, there's no hope in the sacrifices of Moses. So all those things are true if he continues in that posture, as Paul says in Romans. But if you do not continue in your unbelief, you shall be grafted in. Romans chapter 9. See, if you do not continue in unbelief, you shall be grafted in. So to me, there's total consistency in that. He's just making a strong statement to the Jew. You better wake up and receive this because this is what you're doing. And it's a strong, persuasive speech the writer is making to the Jew because he needs it to shake him out of his Moses worship and see that this is the only hope. I don't see in that verse anything that says this is it and you can never now come. But I do see in that verse a strong word that if you continue in unbelief, There is no other sacrifice for sin. To me, it's very clear that it's it's totally consistent with all of Scripture. You touched partly on the answer that was given to me by another pastor when I I tried to fit him down on it. He said, look, you have to understand the writer of the Hebrews is talking to the Jews. Right. That's right. That's right. He had to make... That's right. It's an issue that he had to make a strong case against with the Jew. There's no other way. That's the only way. That's right. That's right. No other sacrifice for sin. That's it. That's exactly right. Which is why it's such strong language. You know? It comes from Hebrews 6, 4, 2, where it says, for it's impossible, you know, 
to renew them. Right. You know, I mean, that's where I think a lot of these people get hung up on that. You know, oh, right. if you reject, then there's absolutely no hope. But, yeah, there is no hope while well, they remain in that posture. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So I think I really, I really see it as totally consistent, but there's definitely a, a push to the Jew to get him to wake up and see this, that there's no hope outside of Christ. And was there another question in the back? Right. That's it. That's exactly it. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. It's all about believing. As the Lord said, didn't I not say, if you would just believe, you would see the glory of God. Awesome. Um, okay. Did anyone find that, that the lyrics of that song? You did? This is so awesome. This is from Oh Holy Night. I love this song. Of course, you know the, 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 uh, the beginning of the song. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of, the, of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the Spirit felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine, the night when Christ was born. Oh, holy night. Oh, night divine. Led by the light of faith, here's the verse. Led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. O'er the world a star is sweetly gleaming. Now come the wise men from out of the Orient land. The king of kings lay thus lowly manger. In all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our need. Our weakness is no stranger. Born to be our friend. Our weakness is no stranger. Awesome. Thanks, Chrissy. The scripture says in Hebrews, I mean in uh, Matthew 12, that he will not, that the bruised reed he will not break. And the smoking flax, he will not quench. Sometimes I feel like a bruised reed. Life beats, beats, beats us all up. But a bruised reed, he will not break. Smoking flax, he will not quench. Just so thankful we have a merciful and faithful high priest. He is with us. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for encouraging us today. Thank you for being our strength. When there is no strength. Thank you for being the light. 
that will shine when all other lights go out. Born to be our friend. A friend that sticks closer than a brother. Abraham, you are my friend. And I am your friend. Sons and daughters of Abraham. Amen.